Pastor Steve, I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, we are in 2019, which means it's a year of living justice at Bethel Christian Fellowship. Justice is a topic that's hot everywhere, it's hot <laughs> here, and uh, through the end of this uh, year, we're c dealing with justice related to sex, money, and power. Um, so my first question for you is, uh, when you heard about this series, and especially now we're, we're focusing on sex, I want to know what feelings that gave you. And, and right now, I just said we're going to preach about sex. I want you to just think to yourself, how did that make you feel? And if you're really brave, I want you to turn to somebody next to you and just say one word, one of the many feelings, um, whatever it is. Okay? All right. I'll give you another word. Tell me how this one makes you feel. Naked. Okay, there's a little reaction to that one too. All right. Um, I don't know if I, I will. Uh, you were pretty brave to share with, with somebody else what you felt already, but if somebody wants to say something to everybody, go ahead. What, what was your one word? Proud. Okay. Proud that the church would be willing to talk about something important? Okay. Awkward. Awkward. All right. I've heard that one before. Yep. Thankful. All right. There's a newlywed for you. Um, yeah. Vulnerable. Uh-huh. Biblical. Okay. Cold. There we go. All right. What feelings does it bring up for you? Maybe a, a little curiosity? Uh, maybe a little shame? Uh, maybe some pain for some of us. Or some blame? Or a little defensive? Maybe because we're feeling a little vulnerable? Um, so, our first uh, sermon here is called Sex, the Glory, and the Shame. Um, because I think there is some sense of the glory and some sense of the shame that comes with this topic. And um, so let me read a little bit from uh, The Mystery of Marriage by Mike Mason. He's, uh, <clears throat> he says, as for me, I still haven't got used to seeing my own wife naked. It's almost as if her body is shining with a bright light, too bright to look at for very long. I can't take my eyes off her, uh, yet I must. Um, and, he go, and he goes on and talks about this. My wife is brighter and more fascinating than a flower, shyer than my an any animal, and more breathtaking than a thousand sunsets. He goes on, um, I catch a small glimpse of what it means that men and women have been made in the image of God. If even the image is this dazzling, what must the original be like? In marriage, we learn that nakedness, like God himself, is inexhaustibly contemplatable. If we look directly at it for at one another, at the same time, it is both a revelation and a darkness, a shining and a secret. 
that shy but driving curiosity we have about other human bodies will be with us all our lives. There is a peeping Tom in all of us, but we can never see enough, never drink our fill. The truth of this is grossly mirrored in the man who's a slave of lust, for whom one stripper or one glassy photograph is never enough. But such lust of the eyes and of the flesh is only the perversion of a perfectly natural and healthy curiosity. Healthy because it is the Lord himself who has made us curious, who has caused us to be fascinated with one another's flesh. God has given the naked body its shining glory and has done so for the sole purpose of making it a marvelous harbinger of his own infinitely more lustrous glory. But there's another aspect to the wonder of flesh, another facet of its glory, and that is the incarnation. For it basically goes on and says, Jesus became a human in a human body. And so there's a, a glory to the human body, which is why artists never get tired of uh, depicting one way or another um, humans, and especially naked humans. And um, at the same time, the uh, perversion of that never seems to wear out either. Um, so the glory and the shame. We talked about last time why we're talking about sex, money, power. We talked about that it's powerful, and specifically sex is powerful. People seek, talk, sing, watch. We are confused is the other thing. We're, honestly, every realm has their way of doing it, but it's different, different places. So my kids went to McAllister College, the sex-positive college, very into sex-positive, but also very into, but consent, but shame, but hashtag me too, but um, watch out for, and so at the same time, we're after, and, and that's not only McAllister, I know it's kind of uh, culture, a lot of places. We're after, it's a, it's a great thing, but it's a terrible, painful, shameful thing. And we don't know what to do with it. And so we try to say, well, let's not have any rules. And yet every orientation at every college has a required thing you have to go through to figure out things about consent and this and that. And yet you have to learn about what you're supposed to do. And um, it's different, different places, uh, depending upon whether you're going to a Christian college where they have all kinds of rules around it. Um, or you're going to another more secular college where they're teaching you how to use condoms, or, they're, or it's somehow we're trying to get a feel around that. But it's not just the college. Come on, folks. It's everywhere. We're, we're confused. And the other reason we're talking about it is because the Bible talks very frankly about sex, but we don't always in church. Like you said, wow, we're talking about that in church? It's pretty amazing how much we talk about it elsewhere and how little we talk about it at church. And it's because it's got that mix of feelings for us. Curiosity and shame and, and wondering. Um, so, some questions. Uh, we talked about this last time too. Is sex good or bad? Why? Who, where's the source? How do I get more? How do I get it better? How do I get more fulfilled? Who decides who gets how much, who it, how it should be used? What is the purpose? And why these confusing feelings? I'm guessing that when I mentioned that, asked you what your feelings were, you had more than one. And maybe you were uncomfortable with the ones you had. <laughs> um, so I want to go back to Genesis 1 to 3, and we're going to look at um, where we started last time as we just introduced this topic. We're going to focus on sexuality. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image. 
to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds and the livestock, all the wild animals in the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. We talked about how this rulership is part of God's image. We talked about, um, he goes on and says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. So our bodies are in the image of God. Our whole being is in the image of God. Now, that doesn't mean God has a body. But when he decided to make an image, he made a male and female images of himself. And it's, so we've usually tried to make that something that's not. This is a Greek heritage of ours. We've tried to make it something that's not our bodies, like it's probably our reason. Or maybe it's our spiritual nature, or the fact that we have a soul. That's all Greek thought brought in. But Hebrew thought, all of who we are is a reflection of God including our bodies and our souls and our reason and our feelings and our desires. It's all somehow in the image of God. And male and female are in the image of God. Now, I, I want you to get this straight because of the fact that our language you know, uses, uh, and, and Hebrew does as well, when there's, when there's a generic pronoun in the language, it says God he. It doesn't mean that God is a he. Okay, it's just that when you use a generic pronoun, now some, some Bible translations change it and just repeat God, but it doesn't mean that God's a he. And how do we know? Well, because male and female are in God's image. Okay? So women are in the image of God. In case you didn't get that straight. And it's just really easy for us to not get that straight. And yes, Jesus had to pick male or female when he came into a body and he picked male, but that didn't mean that God was male. And yes, he referred to his father as father. The Holy Spirit is, we're not sure, it doesn't specify a gender for the Holy Spirit, but this clarifies for us that God is both, and of course neither, male or female. He had... He, in fact, it takes both male and female to reflect God's image. One without the other isn't complete. And this is just a hint, the fact that it says them. Now, in the original Hebrew in Genesis, they weren't thinking about a trinity. But yet, through the Old Testament, there's all these parts of God's spirit is already separate. God's word. God's spirit is hovering over the waters, even as God is, is saying the word. And and the Word and the Spirit and God are, are all creating together. In the New Testament, we see a trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, in unity, and that God is actually a community, even as he's a unity, and he is in love. He is, in a sense, a family already, who, out of that love, created people to reflect the love that was already there before there was anything to love besides God. You following me? So even as male and female, we are reflecting God's image. And I think that's hard for us to imagine. And maybe it's harder um, when you look in the mirror. 
or when you look in your soul, or when you look in, your, in the eye, when you stand naked before the mirror, do you say, that's the image of God? Anybody do that? Uh, not lately. <laughs> but you know, isn't that what it's saying? Um, it's saying we are in the image of God. Not only in us, but our whole beings, including our bodies, and including male and female. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. So sex is very good. Our sexuality is very good. And sex positive, absolutely. The Bible is totally sex positive. God made it. It's good. Very good, along with everything else. So sex, the glory, it's a good blessing from God. It's part of being God's image. It's God's trinity, his loving community, creativity, and ruling all coming together as we are male and female. Your body, your thoughts, your feelings, your spirit are formed by God in God's image. Every other person is also in God's image. We talked about how that's a foundation for our justice that we treat other people also as the image of God, that we treat the opposite gender and sex as the image of God, that God decides the purpose and parameters. And we're going to see a little bit more of that. I hope your Bibles are open to Genesis 1. We're going to move into Genesis 2. There's a Bible in front of you if you, uh, you didn't bring one. Um, so Genesis 2 <clears throat> says this. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. So when you look in the mirror and say, this is God's image, do you say, God knit me together in my mother's womb, like the psalm says? Do you say, God formed me? That form in the mirror is the way God made me? And maybe it has something to do with what, my exercise and my eating and a few other things. But that is pretty much God-formed. And when you look at your husband or wife, you say, that is God's image. When, um, so he breathed into, so God didn't just say a word, we're getting a focus here. God's forming and breathing a new life, his own spirit, his own life into this dust. And there is that combination of, yes, we're dust and God's spiritual life combined in a, and all of us is this image. The Lord placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, but the Lord warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. I want you to notice those things. They freely eat the fruit, but if you eat from this one tree, you're sure to die. Then the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now that should be shocking to us because he just said good, 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 very good. Now he says, well, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Now, sometimes we get this word helper a little bit confused. Um, 
God, that word helper, is actually used most often for God. It's saying the man can't do it by himself. He needs somebody to help. But it's not a demeaning, lower status, oh, you're just a helper. No, they were, the emphasis in this is that they were working together. God had given them this great task of reflecting his image, of caring for the garden, of caring for creation, bringing praise to him, and he needed somebody to do that with him. So God gave him a helper with the task that he had to do. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. So the woman too was fashioned. God made her. And you notice that it was one flesh made into two. And now we're going to see that God puts the two back into one. Um, At last, the man exclaimed, Woohoo! He's been looking at all these animals and going, Yeah, not really. Then he sees a woman, he's, well, yes, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. Is she, anyway, in the Hebrew, it's a similar thing. It's, she, the emphasis is she's like me, and yet she's my opposite. She's corresponding to me, and this is great. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and he's joined to his wife. And the two are united into one, or they become one flesh. And now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Because when they saw themselves and each other, they said, image of God. They said, God's gift. They said, beautiful. They said, woohoo, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That was the glory, the glory of our sexuality. And so I want to make a couple things clear here. God is creating here people and community. And it is not good for any of us to be alone. The worst thing you can do to someone is put them in solitary confinement. Right? We need each other. In spite of the fact that we try really hard not to need each other. This is a big American value. Independence. We have an Independence Day, right? And we want to be independent. We want to be financially independent. We want to be emotionally independent. We want to be on our own. We want to have our own house. We want to have our own car. Just drive by ourselves. We don't want to get on the bus. We want to be independent, right? And as America, we want to be independent from the rest of the world. No, it doesn't work that way. And sex is a great reminder that you don't do very well by yourself. And the truth is, so really, that sex drive reminds you, I want somebody else. But I want to also make clear that this is about the creation of community and of people and that we together are that community reflecting the image of God. And I want to be clear, too, that all of us are created as sexual beings. All of us are created as male or female, and we have a sexual nature, okay? I think sometimes we think only some people, only the beautiful people, only the married people, only the young people, only the... No, we all are, everything we do 
is out of being the image of God and out of being male or female and out of being part of community. And unfortunately, everything, because of the sexual focus of our society, everything gets a little distorted because it comes back to what about? We're going to get to the nakedness and the shame part, but because we're afraid, we're vulnerable, we're, we're unsure of each other. But we need each other. Um, and we need community. So this, this passage is about the beginning of marriage, but it's also about the beginning of community. It's mostly about the beginning of community, about the kingdom of God, about the people that God's creating. Following me? Um, so, so too often we use this, it's not good for man to be alone to mean, especially in Africa, we get, it's not good for somebody not to be married. Everybody ought to be married. It's not what that passage is saying. It's not saying everybody ought to be married. It's saying we need each other. And we all are going to relate to each other with who we are. Okay? We need to be heard by others. We need to be held by others and touched by others. And, and the community of the church is one place where we get some restoration Back to this. So we, when we go around here and give each other hugs, we're welcoming each other back. Okay? And, and people who are older or disabled someplace or they're single or they're so people we might not think, all of us are created male and female and that's good. Am I getting my, my point across? So um, when we say, is there sex outside of marriage? Yes, there's always because we are, but the Bible also says genital sex, you know, putting genitals together is only supposed to be in marriage. But as far as touching, as far as loving each other, as far as getting to know each other, that's for, for beyond just one person. You following me? And we need to allow that and celebrate that with each other. Are you okay? Are you, you with me? Okay. So, because I don't want it to feel like, too often this feels like, oh, this is a passage just about marriage. If I'm single, it doesn't apply to me. No, it applies, because we are together. And um, there's a, an article in Christianity Today, and I didn't write down the author, but she talked about how she um, was into, she got really um, influenced by the purity culture movement, and, and Josh Harris, you know, I, I kissed Dayton goodbye, who has now kissed also his wife goodbye and kissed God goodbye and kissed some other things goodbye. But um, Josh Harris was the promoter of this, this uh, you know, I kissed Dayton goodbye, we're going to have a formula and we're just not going to touch or kiss before we get married and that's going to make everything right. And she was really influenced by that, tried to be really pure. And, um, you know, if you wait until marriage, then sex is going to be great. If you just uh, do this thing, um, and then she went to college, and it was a whole different hookup culture. And there it was all, oh, everybody's doing what? And what am I hearing from my roommate? And what's, what's going on? And she said, you know what? Neither of those really worked. Because actually both of them were making an idol out of sex and romance and marriage. And it wasn't enough to satisfy. And the fact was, you know, Getting great sex was not the point of life, even if it was wait until you can get great sex in a Christian marriage. She said, actually, what 
did it for me was Thursday night meals with people from church. Christian community actually was the fulfillment of what I was looking for in community. And she said, I, I am married now, but that's not the solution. <laughs> that's not the end of it. Are you following me? Because even if you're married, you might have noticed it's not satisfying every need you've ever had. Or maybe some of you it is. I don't know. Um, but sometimes we have other needs beyond what gets satisfied in a marriage relationship, even a good marriage relationship. We need each other. We need each other even to help our marriages. And we need single people to help our marriages. And, we, and single people, we need married people. We need other single people. And we need to be a community together. And we need to be and that sense of being naked and feeling no shame is what we long for. Could I let people know who I really am and not be ashamed? Could I open the cellar door and let people see what's down there? Could I take my clothes off and let somebody accept me? And that's one of the beautiful things that does happen in a Christian marriage is some sort of Coming back to this. Now, we're going to get to why that's, why it's awkward. But um, the, so let, let me just um, go on to God's purposes. I talked about God's purposes for sexuality, that he wants us to reflect his image. He wants us to be a blessing. He wants us to know each other. For the sex act, for sexual, for genital sex, for intercourse, what's God's purpose? God wants us to creating in God's image, to have children. That is the number one purpose. It's a pretty awesome thing to be able to create another person in your image and in God's image, isn't it? Together with another person. It's a, a whole lot of work, too. <laughs> but it's a beautiful, wonderful thing that God brings out of intercourse. Second is companionship, uniting, making them one flesh. We see here that God is the overseer of this marriage. He brings the man to the woman and unites them and, and shows them to each other. And God says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. That is a picture of marriage. Marriage that has to have all those pieces. It has to have a leaving. It has to have a uniting. And it, it, they all go together. Okay? The, the covenant, the commitment of marriage, the intimacy of naked and no shame, and the leaving father and mother. And one person uses the analogy of in, in, uh, in Africa, we tend to have three stones and put a pot on. You've got to have all three of those stones. If you don't have one of them, it's going to fall over. If you have the commitment without, the, without sex, you might need that. If you have the sex without the commitment, if you don't leave father and mother, and this is very interesting to me because this is written in a very patriarchal society. Um, when I'm in Africa, I mean, men don't leave their father and mother and go be united to their wife. They find a wife and they pay some cows and they bring her to their father's house. And they build a house next door. And she's part of the family. So why does it say it like the opposite? I think it says it the opposite because it's trying to make a point for the men who it's maybe the hardest to leave 
their father and mother, that they actually need to separate from their parents and not do what their dad says they should do in their marriage or their mom says. Um, and so, and this, even as much as we have this emphasis on independence and going and being a separate unit, I think in America we take it probably too far. Usually we probably do need to be part of an extended family, but even so, we still can have this carryover. Anybody, any of you ever said, um, well, that's not the way I grew up. That's not the way we did it in my family. That's not the way my parents did it, with the implication that ours is the right way, and you, in our family, we're going to do it the right way like I learned in my family. Anybody ever had that trouble in your marriage or discussion? Yeah, maybe. Um, probably implied, even if you didn't. Or maybe the opposite. I'm so mad at my parents. I'm, we reject, and so our parents still take over what's happening in our marriage because we're reacting to everything they did. So there's still not really an independence from that. But there needs to be a leaving and a uniting together. Um, but there is something beautiful that happens in this unity of one flesh, in this nakedness and feeling no shame, in this uniting together. And uh, it's brought up again in the New Testament. We're going to look at that. But I want us to get to um, third purpose of the sex act is joy. Adam was pretty excited. He was pretty happy to see Eve. And it's, you know, big secret, but it's fun. Sometimes. Okay? It's fun. So, um, all the youth are going, but just let's, to let you know. Um, actually, that news is not big news, is it? Everybody's saying it out there, except they usually say it wrong. They say it's the most fun if it's what you're not supposed to do. Somebody you would never do that with. Not who your parents would want. It's, and see, actually, these go together. Not that they have to go together. We're not, um, I don't believe like the Catholic Church that if there's no possibility of procreation, then you can't, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, I think I'm okay with birth control, for example. But the, um, the need of these three going together, and the fact is that in our society, we do it backwards, and we pull them apart. So most of the, what you hear about is the joy and the fun. Okay? And companionship, yeah, well, maybe. Children, uh, eventually, optionally, if we get around to that, if we, everything else is taken care of. Um, but we pull it apart. So... So I was reading a, uh, an interview about somebody who did some, some inter um, review of hookup culture. Hookup culture is, is uh, kind of when people, you know, they friendships with friends with benefits, and you just kind of get together with somebody and you have sex. It doesn't really mean anything. And in fact, you're supposed to kind of go through a ritual to show that it doesn't mean anything. It's better if you're drunk so that you can just kind of say, oh, I didn't know what I was doing. It's better if you don't really pretend it's a big thing afterwards. It's so you can kind of just keep it. It was just fun. It didn't mean anything, except it does. <laughs> and it hooks people. And so the, the fact is that um, 
one of the places that our society doesn't get it is that sex is so powerful. It's a uniting of people. That when you, if you have your clothes off with somebody else and you're actually having sex with them, it's really a travesty to not share your heart and your community and your history and your money and your future and everything else. You know, in a marriage, you can't really keep secrets. You can try. But they don't know what the secret is, but they know you're keeping a secret, usually. And when you're opening yourself up, but not really, when you're covering up, but uncovering, it's very confusing to your whole self, as well as your whole relationship. So... Um, the New Testament talks about uniting into one in Matthew 5. He talks about, Jesus says, the two will become one flesh. So don't pull asunder what God has put together. So God puts them together. In Ephesians 5, it talks about how, how this is a picture of actually God's uniting us. And so a man should care for his wife like his own body. Because it is, in some sense, his own body. 1 Corinthians 6 to 7, um, he talks about things in some in some powerful ways um, let's turn there if you would first Corinthians 6 and 7 we don't have time to take it all apart here but 612 he says now Corinth was a really um, anything went in Corinth anything and everything sexually went in Corinth in this church he's trying to help them figure things out he says you say I'm allowed to do anything but not everything is good for you and even though, quote, I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave of anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, it's just an appetite. What's the big deal? We all have sexual drives. Why shouldn't we fulfill them? You're going to anyways. He says, this is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. Where is he thinking about well, back in Genesis, it wasn't made for sexual inability. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. So you're made in God's image. Your body is made in God's image. And it was made for the Lord. And he cares about your body. He doesn't just care about what you think about, what you feel about, or your spiritual life. He cares about your body. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. In other words, your body is going to be resurrected. God cares enough to resurrect it. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scripture says the two are united into one. Where is he quoting? Well, we just read in Genesis 2, the two are united into one. But the one person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So, sex is powerful. A lot more powerful than we think. And the fact is that, that <laughs> the world kind of puts it up here, but it kind of puts it down by saying, oh, it's just sex, it's just like eating. It's just no big deal. No, it's a big deal. Because he says, actually, when you're 90, even, even just with a prostitute, even just a one-night stand, you 
combine yourself with this other person. And you're taking what he says belongs to God and uniting with a prostitute. That shouldn't happen. But it happens, and it's not easy to get away from. So he says what? Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who lives in you and was given to you by God, you do not belong to yourself. Your body does not belong to you to decide what to do with. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Now, we're all like, I, I don't know if I want God to have my body. I kind of like having some freedom, some independence. But he says, God bought you. He made you, he bought you with a price. If you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus. Now some of you are just listening in and saying, I don't know about this Christian thing, if I want to follow Jesus. That's okay, listen in. And uh, until you know Jesus' love, you probably won't be <laughs> that attracted to this. Once you know Jesus' love, once you know that he made you, that he bought you, that he redeemed you, then discipleship is saying, what can I, how can I use my body for God's glory to reflect his image? He goes on, now regarding the, in chapter 7, now regarding the questions you asked in your le letter, yes, it's good to abstain from sexual relations. So I was part of the Bachelors Till the Rapture Club because I read this verse and said, okay, Bachelors Till the Rapture, good for a man not to touch a woman is how it says. I'm going to be good, be strong, be independent. Um, that wasn't God's plan for me. Um, but I was trying to uh, run away from my sexuality. <laughs> um, he says, but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time, so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. So you're going to fast and pray for a little while? Okay, that's okay. But afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish everyone were single, just as I am. Yet each person is a special gift from God, one kind or another. So singleness is a gift. He goes on to talk about how it gives us focus and help, helps us focus on the kingdom of God and not other things. Marriage is a gift. And we give the gift of our bodies to the other person. But it's... Um, it's a... It's a... So our society's got things confused in two ways. One is it doesn't make sex as big a thing as it is. This is about the image of God. This is expressing... The image of God. When you have sex, you're expressing the image of God. Wow! You're uniting with another person. Wow! You're becoming one flesh. You're undoing the shame that we're going to get to by being naked and having no shame. Wow! On the other hand, the world doesn't get it because the world doesn't know how broken we are and how broken we all are and how it doesn't work to just 
um, to just do whatever. So I, I need to go on to, uh, so this is the picture, the beautiful picture we had of creation as God made it, relationships blessed, just, and right relationships, love between people, love to God, and love with all the rest of creation. That's where we get naked and no shame. But now we move on to chapter 3 of Genesis. And the first thing we see is the tempter questioning God's word. He says this. Um, if you're in Genesis chapter 3 with me, um, the serpent was the shrewdest of all an the wild animals. That word shrewdest actually picks up on the word naked. The shrewdest of the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Okay, that's what our society says. God doesn't like sex. God doesn't like fruit. God doesn't like appetite. God doesn't like... He said, don't have any of that. Did God say you can't have sex? Notice how it's a kind of ambiguous question. Did God really say that? It's implying a certain answer. It's implying that God doesn't really love you, does he? He's trying to keep something from you, isn't he? She replies, of course we may eat from the trees in the garden. The woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you'll die. Now I want you to notice that Eve doesn't remember God's word very well. I don't know if this is Adam didn't tell her very clearly or she forgot to memorize it, but in the moment of temptation, she doesn't remember what God's word is. She pretty much remembers it, but not exactly. First, she minimizes God's provision. God said, freely eat. Freely eat. And she says, yeah, we can eat. But he, she doesn't say, no, no, we can freely eat from any of the trees in the garden. And see, this is where things get turned around for us, even with sexuality. God has said about sexuality, freely eat. Within your marriage, freely eat. Anything goes that you both agree on that glorifies God, go ahead. Freely eat. But we get this implication that, no, God said, well, it's okay to eat. It's allowed within marriage. But that's not what the Bible says. Proverbs 5 says, May your wife's breast satisfy you always. And Song of Solomon talks, they go on and on extolling each other. And, and I don't know, we eat from the honeycomb. And, the, and you know, we, we kind of try to tame down some of that language that's pretty explicit language. They're enjoying everything. Everything. And God has said, You can eat. You can freely eat. You can freely enjoy sexuality the way that I've designed it. But the world implies that, you know, God hasn't really provided enough. It adds to God's prohibition. She says, he also said we couldn't touch it. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. God didn't say that she couldn't touch the tree. He just said don't eat from it. 
But when we make the fence bigger, then it starts to look like, oh, he's really demanding. And it gets harder for us. So um, <laughs> Garrison Keillor had a, had a great quote in a footnote in Lake Wobegon days that I think explains Garrison Keillor to me a little bit. He grew up in a pretty strict home. He said, my, my parents said north was east, so I went west. They said if I smoked a cigarette, I'd go to hell, so I became a chain smoker. And a lot of us have moved one way or the other. Maybe we started out um, in a churchianity that had lots of rules and don't touch and don't do anything, and so we, we reacted to that. Or maybe we, we, we were in a place that, yeah, everything goes, don't worry, you can do whatever you want. And so we are going to be like, oh, no, not our kids. We're going to make sure they don't have any of the problems that I had, and we're going to put big boundaries around. We're going to make sure they always wear dresses and never see a boy and never touch anybody and never... Not going to have a TV, not going to whatever. You know what I'm saying? We get it twisted, and then we react to the opposite, and then and we tend up to be both in both worlds, if that, if that makes sense. Um, and then it weakens the penalty... God said, you will surely die. And she said, uh, he said, don't do it lest we die. You know, we, there's a possibility of dying if we do this. You know, if you do this, you could get pregnant. You could get a venereal disease. You could, you know, it, you could be bad. No, you're going to die. It's going to be bad. Sin always leads to death. God is saying, freely eat. And he's not adding anything extra. And he's saying, you're going to die if you do this wrong. So, um, then the tempter denies God's word. He just goes right and says, you won't die. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's where God said, you will surely die. It says, no, you will not surely die. Um, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. You will be like God, knowing both good and evil. There's something you're missing. You're missing out. God's got, he's trying to keep you from something so wonderful. You don't want to miss out, do you? And she sees. There's an appeal to the physical, the emotional, the spiritual. God made sex appealing. <laughs> And women appealing and men appealing. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. She wanted to be smart. She wanted to be beautiful. She wanted to be that delicious stuff. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. Notice he was not deceived. He was just stupid. He was just going right along with it. He didn't hear any of that crafty stuff. He heard directly from God what God's word was. He shouldn't have been confused. But his wife said, hey, let's do this. And he said, uh, okay. So don't give me the excuse that, well, she was really coming on to me. He was really after me. And I, I you know, it's not anybody else's fault. We don't want to be deceived and we don't want to do so that's why Adam always gets the tag for original sin. Because he just did it. He knew better, and he did it. Um, here we have sex, the shame. 
At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Anybody ever tried this? Running through the forest and covering yourself with fig leaves? Or any, I don't know, birch leaves, any other kind of leaves? I did try wiping with poison ivy leaves. That was not good. Um, it's very, very bad. I don't recommend it um, when I was a kid. Uh, but it's a good idea. So here they are. They, they are naked. How did they? How did they get naked? You know that humans are the only animals, the only people that they can all be naked, right? Ever, you can talk about a, a tree in its naked glory. It doesn't feel naked. It doesn't look naked. It's just animals can't be naked, but people can be naked. The naked ape, somebody calls. Um, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame. And here's the other big feeling we have <laughs> when it comes to sex. Nakedness is shame. Vulnerability. Exploitation. Fear. We have shame. Um, just go through a couple different types of guilt. It's all of this. Law guilt. I broke the rules. And so now I'm guilty. Uh, that tends to be, in our society, people in the older generation feel like there's the Ten Commandments, you broke them, you shouldn't do that. Um, person guilt. My relationships are messed up. And then there's shame guilt. That I was supposed to be this ideal. I was, I was supposed to be this holy person, and now I'm not. I was supposed to be, you know, you were supposed to be somebody, and now you just, there's that shame of not being the ideal. All those kinds of things come into play. And what is a little confusing these days is that guilt of different kinds get placed on each other. So if you say, we should follow the Ten Commandments. Somebody else says, well, how come you're so hard on people? Right? The interpersonal guilt. And, uh, but one that we often, I think, in Africa, Asia, other places, shame is a big deal. It is here, too, for Westerners, but not in the same way. We don't recognize it as easily. Um, but we do talk about being shameless. And actually, a lot of counseling seems to tend toward trying to make you shameless. No, I'm not good counseling. I'm just saying pop psychology is like we're supposed to become shameless. We, we try to deal with our shame by not feeling that anymore. I'm just going to take my clothes off in front of everybody and just be fine. That would be shameless, right? It's only immature or really ungodly people that take their clothes off in front of everybody. Right? Because there is a shame that's there. Rebellion against God leads to unjust relationships. We're, um, and if you read the rest of that, Jesus comes and says, where are you? He says, I was walking in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Our shame makes us run away from God. Our shame in our sexuality and what we've done in our sexuality makes us run away from God. It makes us fear other people. It makes us fear being exposed. It makes us hate to let anybody in to what we're really thinking. 
what we're really feeling. Now, again, we, do, we want to not put the boundaries out here so that you can't do anything. You get what I'm saying? Sometimes we, we feel ashamed of things that we don't need to feel ashamed of. God gave us sexual desires. The fact that you have a sexual desire doesn't make you a bad person. Lust is not the same thing. Jesus says, if you lust after somebody. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll talk more about that. We don't want to take too much time. But um, where are the boundaries? What are God's boundaries? So, but I want you to see this. So he says, who told you you were naked? Then there's the blame and the shame and the relationships are broken between all of these people. The, the relationship with the, with the ground and there's curse on the ground and now the toil to, to garden and to, to uh, raise food. The pain and the domination. The pain in childbearing and the domination from, from men or from her husband that comes. There's pain that comes into relationships. And there's a separation and a shame with God. And then the end of this verse says something interesting. It says, then the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now, I've heard different debates about maybe this is just a provision. But, you know, I, I don't think a priest could have read that. A priest who receives sacrifices and gets to have the skins from the animals that are sacrificed could read that without thinking it had some kind of significance. I'm trying to imagine Adam, who's like, I ate this fruit, and now he's never seen an animal slaughtered before, as far as I know. God slaughters this animal. He's like, it's not that big a deal. Don't, don't hurt him. No, it's, it's a big deal. you got to cover your shame, your guilt, your nakedness. It is, there's going to be death that comes from this. God gives grace in that he doesn't kill them immediately like they deserve. But he kills an animal to cover up their nakedness so they can have some kind of way to cover their shame. And that, and that as we go through scripture, um, you can already, now that we've finished the books of Moses, can you hear the echoes here? Like choose life. Do God's word. Follow what he does. Um, but here, there's the echoes of the sacrifices that come later in the books of Moses. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to cover our shame, cover our guilt. And they did that to a point. But wearing clothes helps. But it doesn't totally cover our shame, does it? It doesn't mean that there's nothing in our hearts in our minds between the people, right? So, but he killed an animal and gave them clothing made from animal skins to cover their shame. As a precursor to the sacrifices that were made for the shame and the guilt and the broken relationships that Israel had. But those were only a precursor to this. So we talked about sex, the glory. We talked about sex, the shame. I want to finish talking about sex, the grace. So I know when I said nakedness, you were wondering what kind of pictures I was going to put up here. Do you realize that Jesus 
didn't have a little towel on him on the cross? We actually can't look at how naked he was because it's indecent. Jesus was naked on the cross before the whole community. Shame. Cursed. Blame. Here's a criminal. He's guilty. We're not. He's after power. We're not. He's evil. We're not. If we can just kill him, we'll deal with all of our shame. I don't know how people can manage a picture of this. It's hard as people try to make pictures. And you've seen all kinds of pictures of the crucifixion. Because on the one hand, here is the image of God. Here is God himself come in a human body to display his glory. And here on the cross is his glory. And this, this one probably captures more of that glory, that innocence in a way of, of Jesus. And yet other pictures do more to grab the violence and the ripped flesh and the terror and the curse and the injustice of Jesus on the cross. Jesus came and he lived the life that we need to live. He lived with a male body and he lived with sexual temptations and desires and he lived with desires for power. And when Satan came to Jesus, he knew the books of Moses and he quoted Deuteronomy each time exactly and got the intent of it right and countered the temptation and said, no, I'm not going for power the wrong way. I'm not going for glory the wrong way. I'm not going for, I'm submitted to God. I am going to live out his image, even if it means this. So I want you to take your shame around your body, your sexuality, what you've done. I want you to take your pain, your what's been done to you. I want you to put it on the cross with Jesus because Jesus took our sin and our shame and our fear and our pain. And he bore it, not because he deserved it, but because he loves you. Because he loved me. He took my pain and my shame and my sin and my nakedness and the things that I've stuffed in the basement, the things I don't want you to see, the things I've covered up everywhere I know how to, and he's taken them to the cross because I couldn't cover up I tried a fig leaf a birch leaf this and that didn't work even animal sacrifices didn't really work but Jesus has taken your shame I'd like the worship team to come up 
I'd like the uh, elders and their spouses, Rich and Sharon, um, others to come up from the prayer team to pray for people. Because I think some of us, um, have some things we want to deal with. Maybe it's the glory. Maybe it's the shame we want to deal with. Maybe it's fear. So a few final challenges. I want you to know God's Word. Like I just said, Jesus knew what God's Word said. He knew how to answer the tempter. And he stood on that when he was hungry and lonely and tired. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. That's the time to halt, right? But he stood on that. I want you to accept God's grace. Jesus died for you and for your shame. But you have to accept it. You have to accept, first of all, that you have shame. You have to confess your sins to God. I'd encourage you, it says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It also says, confess your faults one to another so you can be healed. As we move into this time now, but also these next weeks, I'd encourage you to find someone who you can share what you don't want to talk about. Someone who can hear your confession, speak God's grace, say, that's why Jesus died that's covered, that you're clean. And finally, I want you to experience God's love. You know, we're always going to be chasing after something or someone or some other fulfillment if we don't experience God's love. Not just know about God's love, but if we're questioning God's love, then the tempter is going to have that opportunity. Did God really say, is God trying to withhold something from you? We're going to be upset that our marriage isn't all that it should be, that our singleness is too frustrating, that our that God's just too harsh until we experience God's love in creating us, in loving us, in dying for us. So let's, let's just pray together. If you'd stand. Father, we come to you and we want to be honest. Well, no, we want to cover up. <laughs> but we're so tired of covering up. We would love to be able to uncover what's really happening in us. We'd love to have you wash us clean by your blood that you shed We'd love to be able to stand naked in your presence, washed clean and pure. We'd love to be honest with ourselves and with you. We'd love to be honest with each other, with somebody about where we're really at, about what we've really done, and we'd love to have somebody speak God's forgiveness to us. So Lord, we come to you I pray you should help us to be more honest than we've been with ourselves and with you. 
Give us an opportunity with somebody else too. Because Lord, we we want you to cleanse us. We want you to purify us. Wash us clean. And give us white robes to wear. That we can stand in your presence and glorify you. We can stand in your grace before others. We can even share your grace with others. Lord, I thank you for paying the price. I thank you for tasting the sin and the shame and the evil, the glory and the shame of a human body, and the glory and the shame of death, even death on a cross. Naked, torn, blamed, and shamed, you took what we deserved. So, Lord, we want to take the gift you've given to us. We want to walk in grace, freedom, joy, honesty, and your love for us. Please do that transformation in us today and in this coming time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.